0: Many of the issues are all interconnected. When I think about, you know, we have tribal sovereignty, we have climate change adaptation, we have even, you know, a youth science program. Any number of those projects are about making sure that Maine, or is now called Maine, is a place we can all live uh, well into the into the future.
1: The subjects Darren Ranko tackles range far and wide. As a professor of anthropology at UMaine and chair of Native American programs, he examines issues like climate change and tribal sovereignty as a scholar. As a member of the Penobscot Nation who grew up in Orono, his interest in these topics go much deeper. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Main Question podcast. On the surface, many of these issues may seem unrelated, but for Ranko, they all coalesce under the theme of caring for the land and the people who live here to allow them to thrive well into the future. He's lived with these issues for as long as he can remember. In addition to his teaching and oversight of the Native America program, all of these research projects are a lot to stay on top of. But he did a great job of boiling it all down for us. We talked about his wide array of research projects and how they relate to each other, as we all face the immense challenge of creating a socially just and environmentally sustainable world. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It strikes me that you are at the crossroads of a lot of issues that we see in the news every day now. You know, everything from uh, climate change to energy to pollution to environmental and social justice, Native American rights, sovereignty. How do you, uh, at at their core, What do all these issues have in common for you?
0: First and foremost is that uh, as a Penobscot Nation citizen, I enter these spaces as an indigenous person and as a scholar. So what I am really committed to, though, is um, the caretaking responsibilities that we have as Wabanaki people and how do I as a scholar kind of impact that in the most positive way. And so many of the issues are all interconnected when I think about, you know, we have Tribal sovereignty. We have climate change adaptation. We have even, you know, a youth science program. Any number of those projects are about making sure that Maine, or is now called Maine, is a place we can all live uh, well into the into the future. And so it's really just, I grew up loving and caring for Maine, and and that's uh, the nature of my work. I think a lot of these issues for for Indigenous people are about our ability to kind of really take care of these lands as we have for thousands of years and really ensuring if I were to think about, you know, climate and, and, um, you know, the future seven generations and sort of how we connect to the land, food, energy, all of these things are about sort of just acting responsibly to this place that
1: we all love. So there's art, there's science, there's math, there's, uh, you know, dealing with human resources, people, but I mean, if you had to like put it on a a chalkboard or a cocktail napkin, is it, can you even do that? Can you come up with a a six word (laughs) Madison Avenue slogan for what you do?
0: Yeah, it's, you know, again, I think it's caretaking for future generations, um, this place that we all care about. I mean, I'm reluctant to call it even Maine because our yeah. investment as well, I'm talking right. people, exists long before there was a state of Maine. But it, it really is about, you know, mobilizing, it, and I think this is, you know, the university at its best, right? How do we mobilize knowledge and action together to create, you know, and support people in Maine, the place that we love? All of that is is about the work.
1: So it sounds like you have been thinking about this ever since you could remember anything. So how, how did you come to this work? <laughs> what first drew you to it? And yeah. why do you keep at it?
0: Yeah, it's it's so funny. And, you know, growing up, I didn't grow up on Indian Island. I grew up here in Orono. So I think just even being caught up in sort of being Penal Scott but not on the reservation um, I always say that that was sort of a led me down the, the, the bad road of anthropology, you know, <laughs> eventually getting a PhD in, in a discipline that had sort of defined us in certain ways as indigenous people. But seeing, you know, when I was in college in the early 90s, seeing anthropology as a pathway for me to ask these difficult questions about sort of what is the future of us as indigenous people Uh, in Maine or on this planet, Um, there was a soul-searching time in anthropology and starting in the 80s where it was no longer about looking past, but it was about, you know, the possibility of of a future. And I think that's what drew me in to become an indigenous anthropologist, but then also sort of saying, well, obviously I'm going to use all the sort of possibilities of access to resources and, and knowledge and information to kind of push it in in these
1: directions should should we be surprised or are people surprised that you're an anthropologist doing this work i mean you know the sort of the the cliche is indiana jones or the pyramids in (laughs) egypt or whatever but i mean an anthropologist studying these topics um may not compute with some people but it makes perfect sense to you obviously
0: yeah you know i think um I think the 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 sort of the idea of cultural or social anthropology, what, what my PhD is in, has always been about like looking at contemporary cultures and sort of studying them. And whereas the archaeologists go, they're 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 more concerned with distant pasts. Uh, um, but I think yeah, f- ultimately understanding the sort of the notion of human difference uh, through culture, I think is what uh, cultural anthropology has been. You know determined to understand uh and and it of course it has its own colonial and you know even racist r- roots in it in terms of saying you know some people are civilized some people are barbarians some people are savages you know that kind of thing um but yeah starting in the mid 20th century trying to really work out a a pathway for anthropology to support indigenous peoples, human rights, those sorts of things has been you know, critical to the to the disciplines uh, evolution. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about some specific yeah. projects. I know one is working with Wabanaki tribes on climate resilience. Yeah. What does that look like?
0: Yeah. So one of the this work started. Um, a number of years ago, even my colleague on John Daigle, he co-authored the um, in the main in the original main climate report from 2010. There was an indigenous uh, people section. It was sort of saying w- one of the things that we know about climate change as it as it as it advances is that indigenous people are going to be th- some of the most impacted people by climate change. So we can start to really say, and why is that? Um, Oftentimes indigenous people are living in places that don't have lots of infrastructure for services. All these things make kind of indigenous people, quote unquote, vulnerable. Um, there's also in the Arctic, in, in certain places in the world, indigenous people are the majority of the people living there. And the Arctic in particular faces some of the most dramatic changes and already, it already has. Um, for us, we want to sort of take that. That we know that Indigenous people have certain kinds of vulnerabilities, or or are going to be particularly impacted, and turn it on its head to say, what are those impacts going to be, and how do we respond to them? Um, you know, we're gonna we're not gonna solve the you know, emissions of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But if we understand these coming climate changes working within indigenous communities and contexts, then we can plan for and maybe even help sort of slow down some of these kinds of impacts on indigenous people. So, and this is very much motivated by um, starting uh, after that climate report, starting in 2012, the Passamaquoddy, actually all the tribes here, had for the very first time an analysis through FEMA, the Emergency Response the Federal Emergency right. Response Agency, they f- started doing some of their first analysis around emergency response related to climatic changes, and that just started in 2012. And the same community that has been the Passamaquoddy uh, Tribe at Zabayak uh, Pleasant Point, same community that's been struggling with these water. Uh, supply issues for for decades. Hopefully, we're on the road solving that. The the legislature in the last term um, passed some legislation to support that. Um, their tribal infrastructure, because the sea level rise in particular, is hugely threatened by climate change. So they've taken a real leadership role in in regards to this work, and we've been able to help them and sort of think about all of the tribes and sort of building a baseline of sort of climate change adaptation and this sort of longer term planning, but. Planning from an indigenous cultural point of view is different than the sort of general guidance that's out there for any coastal community, right? There there, there are particular cultural things, so having particular models and an understanding of the cultural preferences makes indigenous climate change adaptation um, a little bit more difficult, but also requiring sort of this more focused effort.
1: So uh, the, the issues that you have to sort of mitigate, like you mentioned, one, sea level rise, yeah. and certainly the Passamaquodis are near the ocean, so that, sure. that's going to be an issue. Uh, Penobscot Nation is on Indian Island, yeah. so you know, who knows what uh, water level rise is going to mm-hmm. do there. The harvesting or collecting of food supplies, so fish, and, and that, those kinds of things are going to be affected by this as well. So it, it, it gets to the core of that's just right. you know, surviving and, and thriving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, valuing, um, you know, indigenous people in the state of Maine aren't the only people that value the traditional country foods. Uh, There's a great hunting and fishing tradition in the state. But I think in terms of, again, that that's deeper context of caretaking roles of sort of these species over played out over thousands of years, knowing sort of how we and and really reflecting upon as indigenous people, how we already survived and adapted through different kinds of climate regimes in the last couple thousand years. That's super helpful in thinking about this next, you know, hundred years, which will be probably pr- pretty dramatic from what we can tell. Right.
1: So the Ways program, it's uh, a program designed to get young uh, Native American people interested in science. Mm-hmm. Um, can you uh, talk about how you approach that challenge? And mm-hmm. do you meld together Western and Indigenous thoughts about uh, science into that effort?
0: Absolutely. That is the core of the program is um, uh, the Wabanaki Youth and Science Program. We call it the WAYS Program uh, as an acronym started in, in 2012 here at the University of Maine. Um, baseline funding from Maine EPScore. But it, there were even iterations of it. Um, I came back to Maine and became a professor here in 2009. Um, even the year or two before I got here, there was an interest of in Wabanaki by Wabanaki scholars and educators um, uh, working here in the Wabanaki Center to think about science and science education for Indigenous youth, and as a pathway for student success and that sort of thing. What we know, and when we when we really sat down to sort of consider this, we had a couple of a bunch of competing factors, right? We knew that indigenous people, indigenous students had, in terms of being basically the only racialized minority in the United States that has not increased its participation in science uh, in the last 20 years or so. And that's a really depressing uh, factoid. And and there's actually some evidence (laughs) that our participation has gone down in some fields. Mm -hmm. So we were like, well, someone must be thinking about this. And we looked around, sort of, at models. There's some in Alaska, there's some even some things in upstate New York, southern New England, um, out in Oklahoma and the Southwest. Where their successes were starting to happen was this integration of indigenous knowledge and indigenous cultural knowledge into the curriculum for indigenous youth. That was a huge breakthrough. In Alaska they were also having success by maintaining year-long programs Um, and we saw in the in the southwest uh, sort of two-tiered or multicultural mentoring so we were like let's throw all of that into the mix year-long programming involving internships um, after school programs science camps uh, multicultural mentoring a professional or science Mentor, along with a cultural or elder mentor, all those things, uh, especially with this indigenous knowledge and culture, along with Western science, taught together, we are lucky as as Wabanaki people to be uh, benefactors of this uh, Mi'kmaq teaching called Two-eyed Seeing or Monk. and that that teaching is a formulation. Um, from our Mi'kmaq relations out in Nova Scotia to really think about how to bring together and the the idea that the two eyes together will see the world in a clearer, more stereo fashion than just through an indigenous or Western lens. And it's actually even, once you start to examine it, it's it's even more complex than that because it's really about the gift of, of understanding the world through multiple perspectives. And that, as its core, is overlaps with a lot of things that, for example, the National Science Foundation says is a key 21st century learning in education is sort of, you know, what they call convergence, but multiple forms of knowledge contributing information to solving the most complex of our problems.
1: Breaking down silos.
0: Breaking down silos. I got to tell you, I've worked at a few other places. The University of Maine is is a good place to break down those silos and work across things. We have our research centers, Climate Change Institute. I'm part of the Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions. All of these places are leaders in that kind of work. And I think I'd like to think of that here in Native American programs, we're also doing that, especially with, with the tribes in, in, a, in a new way of formulating partnerships with indigenous peoples, communities, and tribal nations.
1: So some of the other work you're doing uh, involves working with land trusts on the the land return movement. Yeah, what, what uh, g- give us the the thumbnail of that?
0: Yeah, you know, and this is our newest project here. What I think is amazing in this last decade is, you know, before it was like we had just one or two indigenous people. It's like, oh, you're doing all this work, and you're. We now have almost like little small teams of people kind of working on this. So, uh, myself a graduate student of mine uh, who's Maliseet Suzanne Greenlaw Tony Sutton who is a new faculty hire here in Native American Studies with Extension we're all working in this in this context of working with land trusts and conservation groups to facilitate the return of indigenous land, of previously indigenous lands to to tribal nations and to really fulfill those caretaking responsibilities by being in um, indigenous control and they're There's been a couple of these sort of major ones that have already happened. What I think is interesting is sort of how that relates to our own cultural responsibility. So this is the research side of this is about what are the mechanisms, what are the possibilities here? Honestly, five years ago, if you'd said you're going to work with land trusts and they're going to help you return land to the tribes, I would have been like, you're crazy. Right. Um, so there's a shift in how land trusts see their work in relation to Indigenous people, and this thing called the First Light Learning Journey. Uh, I helped, you know, educate these land trusts as they were s- establishing this, but they see their role. And the, if you look around the world in terms of the research being done on Indigenous people in land conservation, the best examples of conservation around the world. Uh, have Indigenous people in leadership or in decision-making authority. So this is just new and emergent research. You see the land trusts adjusting to that, and you also see this sort of vibrancy around what they're doing, which is, you know, before it was protecting lands from development. Now they get to tell a different story where we're actually working with Indigenous people, the original stewards and caretakers of this land, to think about the next seven generations of a kind of sustainable but uh, human-oriented kind of place. It's no longer keep the humans out. It's that humans can have a a positive role uh, in the caretaking responsibilities. It just has to be, you know. A little little lighter touch. A little lighter touch, exactly. Right, right. You got it.
1: Um, So in Augusta recently there was a gathering – Uh, of the the tribes in Maine sort of focused on the state of the tribes in Maine. What were the headlines from that event and how did that dovetail with the work you're doing?
0: I was there. I was lucky enough to be there at the State of the Tribes event. All five of the tribal uh, chiefs um, addressed the joint session of the the legislature. This had never happened. There was a similar event 21 years ago uh, where three of the five chiefs were able to make it and kind of invested some time into it. But... um, this had never happened, and it, it shows a real shift in our ability to work with the state of Maine legislature as, as, as tribal nations, um, as equal partners. And I think, you know, how does this all connect? It connects so profoundly to our ability to caretake is connected to things that we refer to as tribal sovereignty, but our ability to kind of regulate and access our traditional homelands, um, feed ourselves, um, you know, care for the environment, respond to climate change—all these are intimately connected to our our ability to govern ourselves. And so, this the headline is, of course, you know, help us help ourselves in terms of being as sovereign entities as tribal nations, um, and recognize that and. You know, maybe we got some of the wording wrong, maybe it was on purpose, maybe it wasn't in terms of this 1980 Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, but we need to update that and make sure the language is right. So. Again, we can fulfill sort of our our roles as caretakers um, of this of this land that is now called Maine.
1: Now, and you're a representative on Maine's tribal commission. This work all flows yeah. through there as well, right?
0: Yeah. So the Maine Indian Tribal-State Commission. I'm one of the two final Penobscot representatives on that commission, which is created by that 1980 Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, and um, it's it's meant to be a, a a place where the disputes are settled it hasn't really functioned that way but it has been a really important um voice for sort of identifying the issues um between the state and and the tribes again they've gone largely unresolved uh we've made some really great progress in these last few years and we're really hopeful that we'll make even more progress this this year they'll There'll be more legislation coming out, but it totally impacts my research or my ability to do my work because it is about, you know, uh, if some of this legislation passes, it means then the tribes can actually plan for uh, climate adaptation and do the things that we need to do to kind of ensure future generations can can have access and enjoy our our traditional foods and cultures.
1: So, as you mentioned, you grew up right down the street from UMaine in yeah. Orono, and like a lot of young people. Bright lights, big city. Maybe sure. I don't know. You left to start your journey. Where did you go, and sure. and what brought you back?
0: Yeah, so I went to uh, <laughs> uh, I went to Dartmouth College uh, as an undergrad. I went there. They have a huge support for for native students, and they have native programs there that was started in the early seventies. That was definitely a big draw for me. Um, I also had a, my, I have three older brothers. One of my brothers was going there at the time. So that helped. Uh, and it's also, you know, and people know where Hanover, New Hampshire is. It's right on the Connecticut River. It kind of looks and feels a lot like being here on the Penobscot River. It's right. a really familiar, also kind of place. Um, I went and did, a, I got my graduate training. I got a PhD uh, at Harvard in, in social anthropology. And uh, also at the same time, got a, uh, a master's degree in environmental law from Vermont Law School and then started my my uh, professional journey my first job was at UC Berkeley which has a great tradition of Native studies and integrated within ethnic studies and then right before I came back home in 2009 I was a faculty member at actually back at Dartmouth College which I would have loved to have stayed there um, again because it has you know strong support for native students Native studies that kind of work but, You know at one point i was home talking to a provost and they're like you know i've i've seen situations at universities that are close to tribes like we are here where there's more integration around research and kind of programming and i don't see a lot of that happening i know that there's a good scholarship program or a tuition waiver program how would we go about really building this and it's sort of one of those situations in life where you're like i think i could help you with that and you're like offering someone some solutions around something and you're kind of writing your own job description. Right. So that was many years ago. And uh, eventually we kind of worked that out into being hired here and coming back home. I didn't think, honestly, I didn't ever think that it was a possibility simply because I had also grown up feeling that social and cultural distance between the university and, and the, the reservation. Like I was intimately kind of thought like, Oh, it's yeah. Yeah. A lot of Native students are going to the university, but in terms of an integration of sort of like the interests of the university and the interests of the tribe could kind of coalesce, didn't seem possible back then. It's totally possible now, and it it reflects a really important, um, I think, leadership point for the University of Maine.
1: So uh, we've spoken to a number of your colleagues from the anthropology department. We could start a whole uh, podcast series just on anthropology (laughs) with everything we've done. We've talked to Cindy Eisenhower and and Dan Sandweiss about their work. Uh, Can you just talk about the department and the strengths and what it brings to the table, what the focus areas are, what students kind of get out of um, experiencing anthropology here, and and how uh, how does your work fit into the bigger picture of what the department's all about? Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the anthropology department here is, I've loved working here. It's actually the first anthropology department I've worked in, technically, even though I have a PhD in anthropology. Uh, I think that says something that uh, before, I think people were like, oh, he's more native studies than anthropology. But here, the anthropology department values the kind of work I'm doing. And I think this idea that anthropology as a discipline has a role in influencing policy and human action now in the 21st century, especially as we face challenges like climate change, that's been a really important um, framework for the anthropology department. I mean, for many of us, um, the late Jim Atchison had such a profound sort of influence on those of us who were like, "What is humane anthropology about?" You know, and Jim worked with lobsterman and all these other people who, you know, people who court to the core, about who Maine is, but also he was, like, involved in policy discussions and making sure that, you know, people in the lobster, you know, the fishermen, and particularly fisher people, that they were involved in the discussions around policymaking. So we see our sort of role as anthropologists in in solving these and addressing these larger societal problems as really kind of uh, aligned with the the little guy you know I think we we spend time on the boats with people we spend time out picking sweetgrass with folks you know like we're really invested in making sure that you know we have a we have humans on this planet in the next couple hundred years but also that you know people are sort of well represented in the kinds of broader societal discussions that you know certain people we know are kind of left out of these discussions and I think anthropologists I think this is a bailiwick of our program and so many of our students go on to do work in and even fields like healthcare or or you know obviously museums and those sorts of things but they're often working with people who are from other cultures or are you know not often thought of in decision making a lot of our students are in these positions sometimes it's with government sometimes with nonprofits sometimes you know in other kinds of institutions. But, yeah, I mean, I feel like we offer a really important kind of – and, you know, Dan and Cindy and and so many of the other folks, like their students are out there doing such great work, and it's really about mobilizing these sort of like how do we include people who are, you know, maybe have from a different perspective on things into a more public sphere. So
1: So, take us into the future. How do you see – the work you're doing and the, these situations you're talking about evolving and uh, and playing out, are, are you hopeful, confident, uh, you know, a little uh, glass half empty and half full kind of situation? Yeah,
0: that's right. I mean, it's so hard. To, <laughs> uh, I, I'm very much like, a, you know, half, half full kind of person, uh, but definitely that's only half full. Right. Um, so really recognizing the opportunities where they exist, and I, I feel like as I mentioned, even with the land return or some of this work, like really making sure that we um, take advantage of those opportunities, right, that are kind of happening. So, you know, because of the hard work of so many people, like we have these opportunities with the legislature, maybe we can shift things there, but we also have those opportunities with land trusts. And, you know, there will be more and more land return to uh, tribal nations in the state in the coming years. I'd be silly to think like, oh, that will just continue forever. But I think it's up to us to kind of make good on, on, on these opportunities. So, you know, a lot of this re- requires us to kind of thoughtfully study and, and raise money and, and kind of support the infrastructures that all of this work is, is leading to. So I, I think, you know, I'm pretty optimistic because, like I said, we've been moving in this really great direction. Uh, hard work by a lot of people has put us in here. Um, But I think really just creating an infrastructure that supports that. And I think the way we've organized Native American programs and have grown just a little bit in these last few years has really uh, created those pathways as well.
1: Well, we could do uh, an hour on each of the the projects you have going here, but we appreciate you you, uh, sharing all this with us and uh, good luck with all this work in the future.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, as always, for listening. You can find all of our episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, UMaine's YouTube page, as well as Amazon, and Audible. Questions or comments? Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ryan Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Maine Question.